Thank you, Adam, and good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Um, can I add my welcome uh, to those of you who may be here for the first time? Um, perhaps you're not a Christian, and this event feels strange to you. Uh, well, things are about to get stranger, because I want to talk about uh, an ancient Hebrew story written over 3,000 years ago. The story is called The Exodus, and it has had a profound impact on human history. So even if you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, you will still be able to appreciate uh, the story's power. As a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus for quite a long time. We began with the people of Israel in Egypt. They had been enslaved, and their lives were hard and bitter. So they cried out to God to save them. And God raised up a man called Moses to argue their case in the courts of uh, Egypt's ruler, the notorious Pharaoh who stubbornly refused to accept that he was a mere creature and not God. So tonight we've reached chapters 11 and 12, which describe the moment when Israel finally leave Egypt on the fateful night called the Passover. It's such a pivotal moment in Israel's history that Jewish people all over the world celebrate it each year. Stories have real power. They draw us in and force us to confront big questions that haunt our own imaginations. And stories are really important for young people, for children, and I'm glad to see some, some young folk out tonight. Whenever I was about seven, I used to spend most of my time here counting the organ pipes. Um, an awful lot of what happened washed over me. But occasionally, a story from the Bible would be so uh, uh, dramatic that it would grip my imagination. And I hope that happens to uh, you tonight. Now, I have to warn the children here the story tonight that we're going to consider is quite scary uh, and serious. But then life can be scary and serious, can't it? So each of us are going to have an experience, an encounter tonight. We don't sit like aloof observers of this story because it will illuminate the hopes and the fears that reside in each of our minds. The Exodus story is actually the story of our own lives. Before we read from the Bible, I need to give you a wee bit of background about uh, Egypt. It had one massive and unique advantage in the ancient world, the River Nile. The Nile gave them a constant and unending supply of water for their crops, so they never had to pray for rain. Egypt was self-sufficient, able to accumulate wealth and use it to build an impressive culture, and we still admire some of their cultural artifacts today. But underneath the impressive surface, Ancient Egypt was a particularly wicked society. The ruling elite used slaves to build their luxurious homes and treasure cities. And they didn't just use the Hebrews as slaves. They began to fear that they, there, there might be a political revolution. So they instigated a, a, a mass murder campaign, a genocide against the people of Israel. So the book of Exodus opens with an utterly hellish scene of Egyptians hurling Hebrew babies into the river Nile. And in their distress, the Hebrews cried out to the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God commissioned Moses to confront Pharaoh, to persuade him to emancipate the, the Hebrew slaves, to, to free them, and to let them return to their homeland. And the rest of the Bible, I should tell you, regards the Pharaoh in the Exodus story with utter horror. Because, now, as far as we know, he wasn't immoral or corrupt. 
but he stubbornly refused to accept that he was a creature, a mere man who was not in control of his destiny. Pharaoh thought that the Hebrew religion was a load of old nonsense. He thought uh, that it was escapist nonsense for the weak. Life was about money and power because there was nothing to reality but physical stuff. Yes, Egypt had their nature gods, but those gods were just a reification of the forces of nature. Egypt, with all its endless resources, lived in this closed system which allowed no place for God. And suddenly that ancient um, culture starts to feel very modern. Since the Enlightenment, Western society has closed its doors to God. The concept of a human being as a creature made in God's image has been discarded. All that medieval superstition about us having an eternal soul which will inhabit either heaven or hell, all that religious mumbo-jumbo has been jettisoned. There's a famous poem written by William Henley. It's called Invictus. And it ends like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I think that line sums up the arrogance of the Western world. Man becomes the measure of things, the captain of his own soul. Now, the early chapters of Exodus give us an astonishing insight into the character of God. He is patient. When the Apostle Paul reflected on the character of uh, of Pharaoh, he said this, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? And as you read through the Exodus story, you discover God gives Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to admit that he is a mere man, six feet of clay, not God. He presents him with evidence by allowing Egypt to experience the bitter consequences of its own wickedness. And eventually, even Pharaoh's advisors see the truth. This is the finger of God, they cry out, in the face of the king's stubborn refusal to acknowledge that no one wins a fight with God. They actually scream in frustration. Don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? But Pharaoh hardens his heart time and time again. So that is the context for tonight's study. Pharaoh is going to learn that, yes, God is patient, but secondly, God is just. The opportunity for repentance had passed, and the time for judgment had come. So let's read now from Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 33. If you don't have a Bible, just listen as I read it to you. And you'll now understand why I earlier issued a warning to the children. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. 
and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. Now, this is utterly shocking. It sounds outrageous to the modern ear. All over Egypt, in every household, comes the sound of loud wailing, a terrifying figure called the avenging angel entered every household and struck down the firstborn. Grief-stricken cries came from mothers and fathers as they discovered what that dreadful figure had done. What sort of a god would do something like that? It's an act of madness or worse. Well, remember how the book of Exodus opens. We heard the sound of wailing there, didn't we? as Hebrew women watched their newborn infants being deliberately drowned. And it wasn't just soldiers who committed those terrible acts. Pharaoh told the whole nation to join in the genocide. Listen to the sound of Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Should God have just stood by and done nothing? He had tried time and time again to show the Egyptians the need to repent of their wickedness. Remember, what was the very first plague? It was to turn the Nile into blood. God was reminding the Egyptians of their genocide of Hebrew babies in the Nile. It was an argument designed to bring the nation to its senses, to its knees, to acknowledge its wickedness. But Pharaoh and the people refused to bow the knee. They clung stubbornly onto their notion of self-sufficiency. God is not our captain. We are masters of our own fate, they said. And so, judgment fell. Now, before we are too quick to accuse God of being vindictive, let me remind you of another genocide. When six million Hebrews were killed in the gas chambers of Hitler's concentration camps. The Nobel Peace Prize winner, Elie Weissel, survived those camps, and he wrote these words about his experience. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. The Jewish theologian Richard Rubenstein was another survivor. He wrote a book called After Auschwitz, which deals with the death of God in our culture. And he said, as children of the earth, we are undeceived concerning our destiny. We have lost all hope, consolation, and illusion. Both those men lost their faith in the God of the Bible because they cried out for justice and heaven was silent. 
What is God to do with us? We criticize God for acting in Exodus 12, and we criticize him for not acting in 1943. What is God to do with us? Nearly all the evil in this world is caused by man's inhumanity to man. We hurt and betray each other. We lie and covet and murder. The social justice warriors tell us that the real problem is structural flaws in society. Just one more political revolution and we will arrive in utopia. But we all know that that is nonsense. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Jesus once said, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come from. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Well, God is patient. I wonder, as you reflect on your own life, has God been giving you evidence that a self-sufficient life always produces disaster? Perhaps you understand Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to give God his place all too well. You resent the idea that he has any claim over you. No one, not even God, has the right to thwart your right to self-determination. You are master of your own fate. Well, how is that plan going for you? Might there not be evidence accumulating as the years go by? With divine patience, God might be holding up your life as, as to a mirror, showing you the sheer moral folly of six feet of clay standing up and shaking a fist in God's face. But the opportunity to repent will not remain open forever. The book of Hebrews contains these chilling words. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I recently watched a clip of Ricky Gervais mocking those of us who have religious belief. I am not afraid to die, he said, to cheers from the audience. Well, he should be. There will be a final judgment. Revelation chapter 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. One day, the Nazi leaders and all those who collaborated with them will stand before that throne. And the God who loved and created those little Jewish children who were gassed and burned will show the universe that their lives had value. He will bring down judgment on those who destroyed the innocent. Now, if Christianity is true, then you also will stand before that throne. In that moment, the words of William Henley will ring hollow. It matters not how straight to get, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, if I ended the story at this point, 
Richard Rubenstein's view of our destiny would be right. We'd have lost all hope and consolation. But I haven't yet told you the story of the Passover. Yes, God is patient. Secondly, God is just. But thirdly, God is loving. So let's read again from Exodus chapter 12, this time verses 21 to 23. This is a very strange moment for the kids in the audience. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. God has no favorites. The people of Israel weren't God's pet child who got off scot-free while others got punished. Everyone in the land, both Israelite and Egyptian, faced God's wrath. But God had provided a provision, a way of being saved from his wrath. Remember, any Egyptian who had repented of their wickedness could have converted to faith in Israel's God and could have availed themselves of this provision, and I'm sure some of them did. There was only one way to escape the terrifying figure called the destroyer who stalked the land that fateful night. Each household had to take an innocent lamb and kill it. In fact, they had to take it into their homes for a period of time beforehand. And you can imagine how fond the children got, became of that little pet lamb. And yet on that fateful night, they were told to take it and kill it. Then they were instructed to take some of the animal's shed blood and paint it on the top of the door and on each side of the doorframe. The book of Isaiah tells us that God stretched himself out over the houses that had the blood of the lamb painted on their doorways. Israel, Isaiah describes God as a hovering bird stretching out his wings to protect those inside from the avenging angel. So the Israelites did as they were told. And all that night they sheltered under the blood of the lamb and in so doing were saved from the wrath of God. Now, it was just a picture, of course. What good would killing an animal do? It was a prototype, a visual aid. But for what? If you think about it, you can see why the New Testament is so interested in this story. Because imagine you're an ancient Israelite for a moment and you venture to open your front door the next day and you realize that you've been protected from the wrath of God. What would you have seen? You would have seen a set of bloodstains but a very specific set of stains. It would have looked as if your household had been protected by a crucified man. John's gospel opens with those magnificent words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is describing the moment when the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, entered his universe as a man. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. But in that same chapter, we see Jesus for the first time. And as he comes towards us, he's introduced by John the Baptist like this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul describes Christ as our Passover Lamb. Because the New Testament says that this ancient story of the Passover is a picture of what was going on when Jesus died on the cross. Somehow, we are saved from God's wrath by the blood of Jesus. But what do those words even mean? Maybe they just sound nonsensical to you. So, let's compare the Bible's approach with another of the world's great religions, Islam. The prophet Muhammad often referred to Allah as Allah the Merciful. He makes it clear that Allah can forgive sin. And the prophet once told a story, it's a little parable, to illustrate that point. It's about a mass murderer, a man who murdered a hundred people, and he wants to repent. But he dies unexpectedly. And so the angels of mercy come from paradise, and the angels of judgment come from uh, hell, and they quarrel over whether the man's soul should end up in paradise or hell. But Allah intervenes miraculously, and he allows the man to go to paradise. He forgives because he has the power to forgive. So that is how Islam sees forgiveness. God forgives because he has the power to forgive. But is it really that simple? In the prophet's parable, what about the mass murderer's victims? Think of the hundred widows and orphans whose lives have been destroyed by the killer's actions. By issuing an unprincipled pardon, Allah would be saying the lives of the man's victims had no value. And his own approach to evil would be ambivalent. Sometimes he punishes it, sometimes he doesn't. Now, in contrast, the Christian theologian John Stott describes forgiveness as a profound problem for the God of Christianity. Because in order to forgive, God's love and his justice have to be reconciled. Think again of those Hebrew mothers wailing as they watch the Egyptians throwing their babies into the Nile. Or consider again the words of Elie Weissel as he watched the ashes of little children ascend into the blue sky from the furnaces of Auschwitz. Wickedness can't be dealt with by power. Sin must be atoned for because a terrible moral debt has been incurred and forgiveness can only be granted once that debt has been paid. Now the easy solution is for God to exact punishment on all of us at the final judgment. But God isn't just patient. He isn't just just. God is loving. So somehow God must reconcile his love and his justice. If God simply ignores the hurt and damage that our sin has caused to others, he is saying that their lives have no value. Someone has to take responsibility for the sin. And that is why the New Testament calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because at the cross of Christ, the moral debt incurred by all of us gets paid by God himself, allowing God to issue us with a principled pardon. The wrath of God, which deservedly should fall on us, fell on Christ. God reconciled his love and justice by substituting himself in our place. And that is the heart of the Christian story. Three seemingly irreconcilable statements are all true at the same time. God is patient. God is just. God is loving. 
I wonder what you think of it. We live in such a cynical world. It turns out that autonomy, that radical freedom to be whatever we want to be, turns out that's just the freedom to be alone. That's why so many young adults struggle with feelings of alienation and isolation. So this idea that God loves us, that he's provided a way for us to be saved from his righteous wrath, that is often met with suspicion. In this culture, we are suspicious of God because we think he he wants to oppress us. And deep down, we quite like being self-sufficient. Well, you have a choice. You can choose the path taken by the Egyptians or the path taken by the Hebrews. And to be solemn for a moment, the stakes could not be higher. Either live as the master of your own fate and hope that Ricky Gervais is right, or shelter under the blood of the Lamb and know that you are eternally saved from the wrath of God. You can make that choice right now in the quietness of your heart. Just as those ancient Hebrews sheltered behind the blood-stained doorway, you can stand at the foot of the cross and ask Christ to save you. Christianity is profoundly rational. It has an intellectual depth that the greatest minds over the past 2,000 years have been unable to plumb. But here's the thing. Becoming a Christian is something that a child can understand. Whatever age you are here tonight, becoming a Christian is as simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. Admit that you are a helpless sinner who sits under God's righteous judgment. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Admit. Believe that Jesus, the Son of God, paid the price for the moral debt you have incurred. And finally, confess. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, committing yourself to a transformed life of service to God. Admit, believe, confess. You can do that right now, or in the quietness of your home, maybe when you talk to your mom and dad. I remember an old hymn from my childhood when I wasn't counting organ pipes. And its opening lines are these. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, those of us here tonight who know and love you, rejoice in our hearts that we have discovered that God is patient, God is just, and God is loving. We thank you that we have sheltered under the blood of the Lamb and in so doing have been saved from your righteous wrath. But for those here tonight, Father, who are yet without Christ, we pray, Lord, that they would reflect on their lives and think of all the evidence that you have piled up in front of their eyes that a self-sufficient life always ends in destruction and disaster. And that with humility, whatever age, they would admit believe and confess, kneel at the foot of the cross, get off the throne of their own hearts, 
give up on self-sufficiency and come as a lost sinner, just as they are, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for us. We return thanks in Jesus' name.